Okay, good. Well, it's nice to see everyone, or at least see most of you. Um, I wanted to open today with a few notes about um, translation, because occasionally different translations, and these are uh, these are just some some somewhat casual thoughts about different ways of translating. Um, you don't need to know any Pali in this class, even though I sometimes refer to it, but it is an interesting process to think about uh, translating texts like this, which are, you know, we read them in English, but that's not, of course, the original language. And that's, that's the case for a lot of texts, <laughs> you know, a lot of Buddhist texts, they were written originally in Pali, and then later ones were written in other languages, in Sanskrit or Chinese or other ones but you know nonetheless they've been translated into various other things throughout the ages um so if you want to do translation you know what is that about you know what does that mean anyone has anyone here actually tried to do translation of um any kind yeah so richard and maybe susan a little bit maybe a little bit so you know that it's not a straightforward process. You can you know, maybe start by, you could try to translate every word and make a literal word-for-word -word translation. This is completely useless, right? The words don't map onto each other exactly, and, you know, it, it wouldn't have the same meaning, and it's just, this is not you know, this is what uh, Google does, you know, when you click on translate this page, and that's why it doesn't ever make any sense what they come up with. So forget, we'll throw that one out right away. So then you immediately think, well, all right, we should do the meaning. I mean, that's what I'm trying to convey is I need to translate so that the English conveys the same meaning that the Pali had. That seems clear enough. That's what we want to do. However, and that's the realm that most translation operates in. And there is, a, even within that, a range, of course, because you can decide, am I going to use formal English? I'm going to use colloquial English. To what degree do I employ images that are modern compared to the literal images that are there? You know, uh, how is that going to speak to people? Um, but you still run into challenges, sort of pretty fundamental ones, if you think deeply about it, which is, I don't actually know what those words meant to a Pali speaker because language and culture are really intertwined and in, you know what something means to a person is so embedded in that whole way of life. Now we can learn something about that. We know historically some things about different cultures, um, but it's not an obvious thing that we would be able to connect with the same meaning through even through the English language that was relevant for an ancient Indian. However, um, I'll then add a nuance and a third idea about translation in the specific case of spiritual texts, um, which are not, I'll suggest, um, only conveying a meaning in the sense that an essay does or that um, a political paper does or uh, something academic or something else that Maybe I won't be too broad, but there are things where the meaning is the main point. But I could say that in a spiritual text, there may be, if one is attuned, a different dimension that the text is actually transmitting something in the same way that a person tries to transmit through speaking. Being in the presence of the Buddha um, was a particularly powerful experience, according to uh, records we have of that, and that's why it's lasted so long. And 
In a sense, these texts, although they weren't written until centuries after the Buddha passed away, um, are conveying, trying to convey what it was that he was offering or that awakened beings of that time were offering. Um, and so there's a question then of, you know, is, is, it, is that only conveyed through the meaning of the words or is there something else? Is there some other, you know, I don't want to say emotional, even spiritual dimension, like poetry, for example, it has a meaning. All those words have a meaning. You could translate it into another language, but poetry is actually meant to evoke something in us emotionally. That's kind of part of its purpose. And it would be missing something to say this poem just has a certain meaning. This is what it's saying. Um, and so I have a friend who does translation who has decided that the way to translate spiritual texts, he does, he translates Tibetan texts, um, but is to try to write the English such that it will evoke in the English reader the same experience that reading the Tibetan would evoke in a Tibetan speaker. He says, I don't care about necessarily the exact literal meaning, although that should be there in some sense, but he adds a little extra punch. He says it should evoke uh, something and it should evoke the same thing that that text was designed to evoke. If you, you have to believe that a text is designed to evoke something, if you want to use that method of translation. And, you know, I don't, um, all I can offer to that is um, I read one of his translations one time. Uh, I'm not a Tibetan practitioner myself, particularly. I've done a little bit, but I'm not a formal student of that school. And um, the conditions were somehow special. And when I read his translation of a Dzogchen text, um, my mind entered a concentrated state. It entered an altered state that persisted for about 12 hours. I was stunned by this. Um, and I know other people who've had awakening experiences through reading particular texts um, when the mind is primed for that. And so I think there's something to the idea that well-written wisdom texts have some real wisdom in them and should be conveying something. And if we um, translate only for the cognitive meaning, then we'll get a cognitive result. But could there be a way to translate uh, that conveys something deeper that transmits? This means that a translator had better be a practitioner, which is challenging sometimes if you don't, one doesn't believe that that's, uh, you know, that that makes one too biased or something. So I'll just offer these as ideas about translation. We read different translations. I know some of you are reading the Sujato when, the, when you don't have the Bhikkhu Bodhi book or it's not available. So there are differences between those. And I don't know their theories of translation, um, those two monks or other monks. Um, but some of them may be trying to, to reach a little deeper. I don't know. And, and of course, you can't know exactly what experience a certain text will evoke for a person or someone else. What is for your reflection? to consider that translation is a pretty subtle art and that um, we don't always know why certain things work or don't work for us. Are there any comments on that? You could write a whole book on this, so I, I'm not claiming to have completed the topic and I may not have said it as well as it could have been said, but I just offer it for, for thought. These are, this is pretty, it's interesting, interesting stuff. Okay, so then we, oh, Susan, yes. I'll just say that it's a sympathetic way that you had that experience. 
And so thank you for sharing that. This sympathetic joy, wonderful feeling. Thank you. Yeah, and that's partly what motivates me to share these texts. I think there's there's something real in them. And I don't get that feeling from everything, but you know, anyway, Val, you look like you were leaning forward. <laughs> um, so when you said that I was I was thinking so the, the translator is assuming that what evokes it, it is evoked in that person, the translator is evoked in all people that would read the text. No, not necessarily. I think there need to be conditions. Um, but maybe what I'm pointing toward is that wisdom texts, um, you know, why do we find meaning in the words of the Buddha from another culture halfway across the world 2,500 years ago? Probably because he's he as a spiritual spiritually advanced person, he saw us deeply enough into the human condition that he was relating at the level of human, so deeply that a human in an ancient Indian society and a human in a modern Western society could somehow connect with what he wrote. Um, at least that's my experience of the text, and so. Uh, my sense is, you know, there's a layer down there that's when he's talking about how the mind works and how, you know, um, how practice can evolve and what, you know, what it can mean to have an experience as a human that we can see in meditation. I think those things do translate across. And so um, maybe, yeah, uh, maybe the awakening experience is very similar for different people. I think it, it, the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion is a definable experience. You see across different wisdom traditions attempts to categorize or systematize or structuralize experiences that humans have when they sit down and focus in certain ways. We A long time ago, people figured out that our mind could do things like this and that it was somehow relevant for our the quality of our life which humans are interested in you know we have enough cognitive ability that we start to ask questions like how could i be happy and you know things like that and so the, these teachings broadly speaking our religious and spiritual teachings are meant to kind of address things like that and somebody has figured out that when you sit down and focus in certain ways following certain instructions the mind does certain things and you can see certain things and those are somehow transmitted in these texts. Um, this can get very big. I mean, I don't know why suddenly there's a bunch of Westerners who find Buddhism interesting, you know? Um, do you believe in rebirth? Did, did they somehow have prior experience of this? Or is it so universal that it's reaching the human level, we could say it in you know, the, the common human level? I don't know. But I encourage thinking about things like this. They're, they're relevant, they're important for your life. If, if this is a meaningful pursuit for you so yeah it's all it's all available and i hope it's all part of what we explore in these texts so we've been looking at mn4 fear and dread sorry for the title but it's pretty much about that so um so as a review uh we got through the part where the sort of setup of the story is this Brahmin, John Usoni, who is the fellow who dresses all in white and has white horses and all that. Um, although you don't see that explicitly in this sutta. And so he comes and asks question about practice and the Buddha, about whether the Buddha is a model. And he says, yes. And then he asks, isn't practice hard? And the Buddha says, well, yes. And we got through the part where the Buddha um, talked about 
really paying attention to his own virtue and his own good qualities, even to the point where we might be a little uncomfortable as Westerners. You know, he says, well, I don't have these problems of being, um, having a mind of ill will of intentions and hate. I have a mind of loving kindness. I am without sloth and torpor. I have a peaceful mind. I've gone beyond doubt to the point where we're a little bit, oh my gosh, is this guy kind of, I don't know. Um, and yet it's, I think, meant seriously is that we should reflect on these good qualities. Now, the Buddha wasn't enlightened yet. He didn't, he, he wasn't perfected in all these things, but he knew he, he had such qualities available to him at least. And I mean, we can see that in our mind, those qualities are available too, to, to some degree. So then we got to, um, in the Bhikkhu Bodhi version, section 20, which says, um, I considered thus, there are specifically auspicious nights, etc. Um, maybe we won't read exactly this one. Uh, also, just summarize it. So essentially, he says, this is now a little bit cultural. These are the Oposita days and the day, days related to the months, to, to the days of the month. Uh, and so there are certain auspicious nights. And then he talks about these places that are meant to be awe-inspiring, horrifying abodes, orchard shrines, woodland shrines, and tree shrines. I'm not totally sure what all that refers to, but um, we might imagine that we can understand that there are, you know, places that are spooky or considered, you know, um, special places to practice, let's say. And so then he's a little farther down, he says, and while I dwelt there, a wild animal would come up to me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind would rustle the leaves. And then I thought, what now if this is the fear and dread coming? And so he's, he's thinking, I'm going to get scared. Um, this is scary. And then, he, and then he thinks, hmm, why am I oppressed by this? He starts realizing there's a little bit of oppression there. Why do I dwell always expecting fear and dread? So, and then he says, what, what if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture that I'm in when it comes upon me? So that's an interesting, there are several interesting points here. Um, first of all, even for the Buddha, there was fear and dread before awakening. So um, we don't have to worry if that's still a feature of our practice. I think I've said other, other times, any spiritual practice worth its salt will eventually bring up fear. Um, let me ask if you agree with that. Do you, do you think that's true? And why is that true? Why does spiritual practice tend to bring up fear? Evie. I think that's going to bring up whatever's there. <laughs> so, so like, you know, if normally we're distracting ourselves or, you know, if I'm distracting myself from anything, and then I get quiet, that's what will well up. I mean, I actually don't find that it only, I'm pretty aware of it a lot of the time, <laughs> but, but certainly just whatever is there is what's gonna come up. So I don't think it is necessarily fear and dread, but I think if you're trying to avoid fear and dread and, and distracting yourselves and you stop- Oh yeah, saying, you will eventually have to encounter that. Yeah. But is there anything, and that's true, whatever our, our thing is, if we're a greedy type or an anger type or something, that will certainly have to be seen at some point in our practice. Um, is there anything specific about fear and dread? Like why? Well, maybe because it's like 
just like these things come when you're quiet and alone. I don't know. I mean, that's sort of part of fear and dread is that you're, uh oh, I'm alone. There's nobody here to protect me. There's, I don't know. This is true. So the exposure, the vulnerability. Yeah, thanks. Other comments, Susan and then Val. Well, so much of my conditioning has, was um, to move away from those feelings. And so I've spent so much time trying to escape them that when I get still. Yeah. So that's, um, that's certainly the case. And, and we want to avoid fear because it's a very unpleasant sensation, of course. Um, Val, did you have a comment? Just, I was just thinking, I think there's even a little bit of um, fear in being able to walk the path, not so much doubt, but kind of uh, maybe some fear around being able to really walk the path. Um, I don't know if I'm expressing. Um, fear that perhaps I cannot, well, that could be doubt again. I guess it's just doubt that I'm talking about. Fear that I could not um, walk the path, yeah. You know, what the path brings? Uh, no, I mean my ability. So it would be a doubt. Okay, again. so that would be doubt. Yeah, that would be doubt. Um, it's related to fear. Yeah. Donna writes in, I think spiritual practice pushes your boundaries. Yes. So could you, are you able to speak, Donna? Can you comment on that? I can't unmute you. You have to unmute on your phone somehow. Um, hmm, I'm not sure what the command is to unmute on the phone application, but maybe if you um, press the screen, some options come up sometimes. Uh, you can see how to unmute. Okay, well, I appreciate the chat because that um, is uh, no problem, Donna. It's okay. We're glad you're here anyway. Um, so this is a good point. Donna's pointing towards something important, um, which is that practice does push our boundaries. I mean, this is a practice of letting go of uh, our, our ideas about uh, what happiness is, uh, what it is, what our, our life is, what our identity is. Uh, deep spiritual practice identifies the problem with life as being the sense that we are an individual fighting against an external world, trying to make our way in an external world. That very view is suffering. Uh, all the major spiritual traditions say that. And we can agree with that easily on an intellectual level. Oh, yeah, I get that. Okay, great. Sign me up. I want the love and bliss. Um, but what does that mean? It means that you have to challenge, you have to, how do you let go of that idea? And so these practices, these methods are designed to do that. They're designed to undo um, our usual way of thinking because that's what's causing the suffering. And we, we all want it, we might want it emotionally, we might want it cognitively, but actually doing it, uh, there does come a moment where we encounter the part of the mind that doesn't want to do that. And it throws up a wall of fear. It says, ah, I don't want to die. And if you haven't met that yet, you will. <laughs> and it's an interesting moment of practice. And it continues. I mean, there's many layers of that. 
But once you get used to it, if you've done it a few times, then it's like, okay, I know how to do that. <laughs> but there is, you know, the maturing on the path you do encounter, having to let go of things. And it's not illogical that we've created these views and ways of being in the world. They were our survival strategies um, from earlier. And so somebody comes in and asks you to let go of something that you have developed because you think you need it to survive. That's a difficult moment. <laughs> um, to let go of something that you think you need to be happy or to live even. So um, that's why spiritual practice has this whole container in it. It has the Sangha, it has a retreat center, it has forms that you can ordain in. All of these are methods to help us do those things that are very hard. Um, and you don't have to, it doesn't mean that only the people who do, do those things will get through that barrier. It's not true. And even the people who do those things may not. <laughs> um, but you know, those are structures that can be helpful. So the Buddha points out, I mean, the Buddha, he did it on his own in the woods, right? So, um, so fear and dread. So the Buddha is expecting this, but then he says, I'm not gonna be oppressed by this. Um, and he says something very interesting. Uh, he says here, oops, what page am I on? What if I subdue that fear and dread while keeping the same posture that I am in when it comes upon me? Well, how about that for a profound spiritual instruction? I'm not going to change my posture. Don't you think it would be something a little more grandiose than that? Um, but in the end, that's, the, that's what he says in this sutta, is that um, he's just going to be with it. He's just going to meet it and not be cowed by it, essentially. So would somebody read um, the next paragraph? It's a little repetitive, but it's kind of nice to hear. While I walked, etc. Linda. While I while I walked, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither stood nor sat nor lay down till I had subdued that fear and dread. While I stood, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked nor sat nor lay down till I had subdued the fear and dread. While I sat, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked nor stood nor lay down till I had subdued the fear and dread. While I lay down, the fear and dread came upon me. I neither walked nor stood nor sat down till I had subdued this fear and dread. Yeah, thanks. So those are the four postures, the four classic postures that we're in. And he says all he did was not change his posture. Um, this is profound, actually, and that it's very easy. Uh, when we're sitting, something comes up, we get up, <laughs> you know, or we're, you know, we're, we're walking and something comes up and we say, oh, I think I'll sit or stop, stop walking and just stand here. And he decided he wasn't going to make any changes. I don't know that we need to take this sort of absolutely literally as the last exact instruction that we should all obey all the time. That's not really what it says. Um, and it also is has strong language. It uses the word subdue, um, which you know, we might say, mm, you know, this is kind of setting us up for those 
moments where people get themselves in trouble on retreat and they you know decide they're going to sit for 20 hours or whatever um this is kind of you know young enthusiastic yogi phenomenon that we get and you know people do have problems on retreat sometimes when they get a little bit too uh, resolved shall we say um but we can um we can consider that this, this instruction comes with a bunch of setup before it. So there were special conditions in place for the Bodhisattva to be acting like this. First of all, he had reflected on all of his good qualities. It's not irrelevant. Um, so he had in, in mind everything that was, he had all the good stuff brought up and on his side. And then um, secondly, he did have a resolve that he was intending, he was intending to meet this fear and dread. It wasn't sort of coming up on him randomly because um, it was, I don't know, breaking through his habits and, or something. He had decided, no, I'm going to meet this fear and dread. I'm tired of being pushed around by my fear and dread. And so he had also the momentum of a, a clear, wholesome resolve and a lot of strong practice behind him. Um, so there were special conditions in place. Um, so this is, remember we're told at the beginning of this sutta that the, the Buddha is a model for his... Um, followers. Do you think this is good modeling? <laughs> I saw a few skeptical looks. Donna says yes. Pratibha, yeah, go ahead. Um, it feels like good modeling for me because in my own experience, when I come when um, these strong emotional states come up for me and definitely fear and dread would be among those i do find that just staying just stopping just being with that allows it to subside it's so exactly, easy yeah. to distract oneself and say oh i'm really uncomfortable i'm going to get up and i'm going to do something else there's always a list of ten thousand things to be done in one's life if one chooses but i have found that when i can just stay it's like telling a dog to stay <laughs> you know then yeah. you watch while things change and a yep. few moments later then oh wow look at that everything's different now hmm. and they do that's right it's important to to see that things change um that we don't have to react to everything it's not a small thing to be able to sit through, especially some of these deeper fears or the, you know, the dark night of the soul that can come up in practice. But the instruction is sound uh, in, because it's not in the end something that we really do actively. So anything he says that you would do uh, can set up problems also. Yeah, it's more of a not doing. It's a more of a not doing. Um, stopping to do, yeah, Leanne. Um, I had um, just taken a course on retraining your brain, and it they emphasize um, you know the amygdala, and you get the um, the chemical um, reaction of um, your adrenaline flowing or whatever, and that often comes up with fear and dread. And I think that becoming active and moving would only stimulate more of the adrenaline. So I think, you know, once again, the Buddha is very wise and 
understanding the body and how it works in this um, example. Was that, would you agree? Yeah. You know, I said, um, doing things isn't, is adding something, doing something, if I understood correctly what you said. Well, it, I think it, it, um, it, it kind of helps to promote the, uh, the chemical reaction, adrenaline or whatever, to continue if you start, like, because it's, it's a, it's a um, response for escaping, for running away. And so if you just sit with it, you're not allowing that response to happen. Yeah. I mean, the, luckily the Buddha didn't know anything about neuroscience, so he didn't <laughs> have to worry about that. But there are he, studies that yeah. say that if you don't feed an emotion, it's gone in about two minutes. Yeah. It's and I think, true. you know, the, the Buddha experienced that he didn't maybe have the neuroscience, but he experienced it in his own body and understood it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is no small feat, of course, yeah, to right. do this. Um, so I'm not saying it's easy. And after all, remember when the Brahmin said at the beginning, surely it's difficult to practice mm -hmm. alone in the forest. The Buddha said, that is so, Brahmin, that is so. Uh, so he's not, you know, saying all oh, you have, you know, just sit there and do nothing. There's actually a, a lot of training that goes into having the capacity to be able to do this. Um, so that's a lot mm -hmm. of what we're doing in our practice is building mm -hmm. capacity. You just sit there and drop by drop, you sit non-reactively with experience and what's happening and that builds up some capacity. And then sometime later you realize, wow, I didn't react to something that I normally would have. Uh, yeah. And eventually we develop enough capacity that we could even let go of really fundamental ideas about who we are and how the world works. And, you know, if you have enough attentional strength for that, but it's a process. Yeah. I remember being on retreat with Ajahn Suchito one time, and he talked about replacing fear with awareness. And I thought immediately of this sutta, replacing fear with awareness. Well, there are other methods, of course, that we can use if we feel we don't have enough capacity at a given moment. But in the end, the method that worked for the Buddha was to just be with it. Okay, so... Um, Going on, there's this paragraph about uh, perceiving night when it's night and day when it's day, being not subject to delusion has appeared. So, um, I don't know, I see this mostly as clarity. You know, he's, he's, uh, when he doesn't give in to the fear, he is available to develop mindfulness and clarity. And then what comes next is concentration. Well, energy is what comes next. Uh, and then followed by concentration. So um, could someone read the paragraph called where it says tireless energy was rehoused in me? Uh, Evie. Tireless energy was in me and unremitting was established. My body was tranquil and untroubled. My mind concentrated and unified. Great. Thank you. There's actually a mini little Buddhist teaching in here. Um, there's a list being cultivated here and um, uh, that, that echoes throughout the suttas. So that's part of the structure of this sutta. It's not explicit, but um, does anybody recall a list uh, where energy, mindfulness, and concentration 
there's two lists actually where they appear in that order, but I'm thinking of one in particular. The Eightfold Path? The Eightfold Path is one of them. Um, and the other... Spiritual qualities? The five spiritual faculties, right. Um, and what are the, the total five, Val? Ah, okay. Um, well, one's effort and mind. So we know that energy, mindfulness, and concentration are there. And then what's on either end? Yeah. Um, not coming to me. Okay, so the first one is faith. So it's faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So we have the whole beginning part is about faith. Um, you know, he has faith in himself. He has faith in his practice. Uh, he has faith that he's going to be able to subdue this fear and dread. All that stuff at the beginning is a buildup of confidence. That's actually why you reflect on your good qualities. It's, it's, a, it's a practice of faith. There's another sutta that has six skillful reflections that cultivate faith. Reflecting on Buddha Dharma Sangha, reflecting on your generosity, reflecting on your virtue, and reflecting on the deities. And we won't go into the devas here. Um, so we understand that reflection on our qualities is a faith practice. So that is the whole first part of the sutta. And then we have this little paragraph slipped in. Tireless energy was aroused, my, an unremitting mindfulness, and my mind was concentrated and unified. So we've got the, the next three spiritual faculties, and then we're going to get to wisdom, which is the three knowledges coming later. So there's embedded in this is the uh, idea that a person of the five spirit who has very perfected the five spiritual faculties is fit to awaken. Uh, so that's implicit, but I you know, not maybe not said explicitly. And then we have uh, boilerplate material. We have the jhanas. So that's concentration. Um, when I say boilerplate, uh, the, uh, the more formal word for that is pericope. It's a text that's repeated uh, from sutta to sutta, sort of a cut and paste kind of deal. Um, it partly serves the function of these are oral texts. And so you're just plugging in things that are remembered and, and brought in in the right place. Um, and in addition, it serves the purpose of repetition. You always, you keep hearing the same thing again and again, and your mind starts to realize, oh, it's important. <laughs> That's why. So um, let's see. Yeah, why don't we read these lovely descriptions of the four jhanas? These are a little bit abbreviated. Sometimes they have images with them, which they don't hear. But could somebody read section 23, which is the first jhana? I will. Okay, thanks, Leanne. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and invited in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Yeah, thank you. So this is all stock material. We could go into a long analysis of what all this means, but um, we won't right here. It's, it's mostly serving a function in the sutta of showing that the degree of concentration that um, the Buddha had in order to see as clearly as he did. Um, but we start with seclusion. So the jhanas are things that can arise when the mind has let go of all the hindrances. So that's what's meant by secluded from unwholesome states. And um, yeah, so then when the hindrances are subdued, jhana can arise. There are some things here about um, the jhana factors, applied and sustained thought, vitaka vichara, 
rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, which is piti um, and sukha. So these are the uh, qualities that start to arise, which are char characterize a mind that's going into absorption. Um, okay, second jhana, section 24. Somebody want to read that one? These are all short. Actually, somebody could just read them. Well, no, let's do, let's do them separately. 24. This is the first time we've encountered these, so I want us to see each one vowel. Thanks. And then Pratipa for the third jhana. You're, you're muted, Val. Sorry. With the stilling of the plot and sustained thought, I entered upon and abided in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Yeah, thanks. So here we, um, we let go of Vitaka Vichara, we let go of any kind of thought and the mind is now abiding quite independent of uh, inputs from the outside. Singleness of mind appears, that's the uh, Ekagata, the fifth jhana factor, and it has um, Piti and Sukha also. So it's very, very uh, pleasant and uh, absorbed state where the mind, uh, the rapture and pleasure are born of concentration, not of seclusion. So it's uh, feeding on itself essentially. And uh, yeah. And then the third jhana, uh, Pratibha. With the fading away of rapture, I abided in equanimity and mindful and fully aware still feeling pleasure with the body, I entered upon and abided in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce, he has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. So thank you, yeah. So in the third jhana, we lose the, the joy, the rapture, the, the piti, the kind of strong um, energetic joy that comes really to the fore in the second jhana. And, but there's still um, uh, sukha, which is the happiness or pleasure, feeling pleasure with the body. So sukha is a deep happiness of the body. And we have, in addition, the bringing in of equanimity, although it's not at the fore yet. Um, third jhana is much more still, much more peaceful than the second, and it's very, very happy. Um, and then the fourth jhana, section 26. Okay, yeah, Richard. Thank you. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, I entered upon and abided in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. So thank you, yeah. So this is the fourth of the absorptions, the fourth of the material absorptions described here. Uh, you you lose even the happiness, but it doesn't matter because the equanimity is so clean and pure and strong that um, happiness even feels a little bit too agitated and the mind just settles into this deeply balanced state that can't be perturbed from really from anything. Um, and so... That is considered in the Buddhist teachings to be the state that is kind of the most conducive to seeing clearly. There are higher absorptions, of course, the immaterial jhanas come after this, 
I shouldn't call them jhanas, the immaterial bases is actually what they're called. And those are refinements of the, they're actually refinements of the fourth jhana, uh, where you just change the object from being a material object to an immaterial object. But we won't go into those here because they're not in this sutta. Um, they're not considered necessary for awakening, um, the immaterial jhanas. There are arahants in the early tradition, there are arahants who never developed them but they've nonetheless completely gone beyond all suffering. Um, the Buddha learned the immaterial jhanas, by the way, before uh, he awakened. There's another sutta where he talks about studying the seventh and eighth jhanas with teachers of his time, seventh and eighth immaterial bases. Um, but they didn't lead him to awakening because he didn't have the understanding yet. So just FYI, <laughs> you can go even deeper than this. Um, but you don't need to. He, so he got to this fourth jhana. Um, and then he didn't just rest there because it's actually a place where you could just hang out and you know enjoy that for a while. But he uses it uh, for, for insight, which is the purpose of concentration on the Buddhist path. It's not an end in and of itself, um, even though it's a great accomplishment to get to the fourth jhana and be able to be good at that. Uh, it's not the point. Uh, the point is to uh, end the defilements, to free the mind. And so that only comes through insight. So we get to that in the next section. Um, we're not going to get through all three knowledges, but we could read the first. We'll start with the first knowledge. Maybe we'll, we'll see. So section 27 is uh, starts kind of a new um, pericope, shall we say, thing that's repeated in other suttas. Um, would somebody read this section? 27. There's been a lot of reading today, sorry, but it's good. Linda. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperpetuity, imper Imperturbability. Imperturbability. I directed it to knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives, that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, <laughs> ten births, twenty births, thirty births, forty births, fifty births, a hundred births, a thousand births and a hundred thousand births, many eons of world concentration, many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction and expansion. There I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance, such was my nutriment, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life term, and passing away from there, I reappeared elsewhere. And there too, I was so named of such a clan with such an appearance, such as my nutriment, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life term. And passing away from there, I reappeared here. Thus, with their aspects and particulars, I recollect manifold past lives. Thank you. So that's um, a very stock description that you'll hear for the Buddha attaining awakening and some arahants also, um, uh, this is said about them. So this is not only a quality of the Buddha uh, that you can do this. 
Um, so it's an interesting idea. I mean, suddenly we have this worldview of, um, of having so many births and rebirths and uh, et cetera. It doesn't say anything about how one gets reborn. That's the second knowledge. Um, but uh, it suddenly becomes very specific. And most of the Buddhist teachings, you don't necessarily have to have this view uh, along with it. But here, this was actually part of his awakening, is that he saw his mind as being the product of a huge number of lives that had come before. The intention is kind of, it was more than you could really count. Um, and also though, this is quite an amazing accomplishment to be able to see all of this in meditation, right? So the mind was very strongly concentrated, very clear, able to really penetrate um, into reality as it was appearing itself. Um, I'll just read the next paragraph so that to, to complete this. This was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. So this is, um, there's going to be three knowledges. These knowledges are called vija, uh, te vija for three, but each of them is a vija, and that's the word that opposes ignorance. Ignorance is avija or avidya in Sanskrit. Um, and so he's talking here about, you know, sort of very important knowledges that um, he, things that he understood that freed his mind, that led up to the freeing of his mind. They're very, uh, a little bit culturally specific because um, the Brahmins had the idea of three knowledges also. Um, and maybe, maybe this is a good time because instead of trying to push through the other two knowledges, which we'll get to, I'll just give an overview. Like, why is the Buddha talking about three knowledges? Why is that, you know, why would that be something, especially because he's teaching a Brahmin, by the way. So he has to speak in a language that the Brahmin understands. So there was a phrase at the time called a Tevija Brahmin. And that was high praise for a Brahmin, but it didn't mean he'd had these particular knowledges. Tevija Brahmins were skilled in uh, the three Vedas that were in use at that time. Um, there are now four Vedas, but 2,500 years ago, apparently there were only three. Um, and I think they're the, I don't, the one is the Rig Veda, the Yagra Veda, the Sama Veda, those three, I, something like that. I don't have exact names of all the Vedas at my fingertips. But um, this is a high honor. And the Buddha spent a lot of time, since he was, of course, a, you know, contrasting himself with the Brahmins, who were the hereditary religious class who had all the spiritual power in that society. He did things like take terms from their religion and um, uh, adapt them to his. So... He, um, and he would often say, you know, these are the real three knowledges. And so that's what he's laying out in this sutta. It's like, these are the actual three knowledges that really matter. Um, this is what a person who is, you know, skilled in the three knowledges would, would know about. These are the ones that really matter. If you want a reference for uh, Tevija, by the way, there's a sutta, um, Idivudaka 399, 3.99, uh, which is in the Minor Discourses is called the Tevija Sutta, and it has um, the Buddha uh, also saying why he thinks a person who has these knowledges is better than uh, a Brahmin who is 
it's, it's actually quite a disparaging sutta to the Brahmins. Um, I sort of pulled it up so we can um, look at it, but it's, uh, it's uh, he says something like, people who are mere reciters and spitters out of words or something like that. You know, he, he really insults the, the Brahmins just merely memorizing things and saying them again and again as uh, true knowledge. And so he says, these are the true knowledges. When you actually do the practices, concentrate your mind and see how things actually are. That is what I mean by knowledge. So he's, he's making sort of a political statement <laughs> with this um, sutta. He didn't make up these three knowledges out of whole cloth. He was, it was opposing uh, the, the idea of a Tevija Brahman. Okay. So, um, comments or questions at this point? Yeah, where is that from? Um, Giri Buddhika 399. Why don't we why don't we just look it up on Sutta Central? How about that? While we're here, um, I had it up to fear and dread, but that's not what we want. Okay, so this is in the you guys can see my screen, right? The minor discourses, the Kudika Nikaya, the Idivudika, Tika Nipata third, number ninety nine. The very last one, Panchama Bhaga. See if I can get to that. Look at that. The threefold knowledge, the Te Vija Sutta, John Ireland's translation. It's interesting that he uses Ireland. Okay. So here, so here it is. Um, I declare that it is through the Dhamma that one becomes a Brahmin possessing the threefold knowledge. So that's the Te Vija Brahmin. I do not say this of another merely because he can talk persuasively and recite. That's a little ding at the Brahmins because that's what he thinks they do. And how do I declare this? And so then this has the same, see pericope, it has the same three knowledges. Here, a bhikkhu recollects a variety of former lives. I recollected my manifold past lives. One birth, two births, three births. This is what Linda just read. Um, and so it has the same, uh, no, three no. knowledges that we're going to read in MN4. Oh. Copy here. Prati, but does that help you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I'd love is to. Idi yeah. 399. I will put it in the chat uh, so you guys can look it up later if you want. Yeah, thanks a lot. merely because he can speak persuasively and recite. So he was making a little point there. And now, of course, we did just have the last sutta that we read, right, about hymns coming to mind when your mind is not hindered. So it's not that the Buddha thinks it's not important to learn and memorize and study. He says, you know, in fact, when your mind is unhindered and has free mindfulness, those teachings will come to mind, and that's actually a good thing. Um, so... You know, it's a little bit nuanced. The Buddha is not an anti-intellectual, um, but he is pretty, pretty clear that what the Brahmins are doing, he doesn't think has anything to do with awakening. Kim, I do, ha I have experienced though that when one can be chanting prayers or sutras or 
mantras or whatever that that you can come to the place where they kind of go on on their own channel and the, on another part of the mind is thinking about something else and so it seems to me maybe that's what he's referring to rather than being concentrated fully concentrated on what you're actually chanting and what you're okay actually... yeah i think he would yeah that could be one reason i mean ultimately he's saying that chanting doesn't lead to awakening concentration doesn't lead to awakening concentration alone let's say um, and that doesn't mean necessarily that chanting doesn't include chanting is a concentration practice it's also a faith developing practice but i mean it, it focuses the mind but you're right the mind could slip out and still and have some some uh, distraction going it's also on the skillful side though it is also possible to do concentration practices like mantra <coughs> excuse me um, and do an insight practice in addition to that i know people who are longtime practitioners of um, uh, transcendental meditation which buddhists tend to dismiss as a mere concentration practice because it's mantra based but and some people i think just do it that way but i do know also people who have done mantra practice and through it their mind starts to have insights so it's like that that extra part of the mind that's not doing the chanting can do wisdom uh, instead of doing distraction say um, but the buddha is pretty clear that just doing oral recitation and just doing ritual <clears throat> and just doing ceremony like the Brahmins did. It, it was a little bit like the way the Romans got kind of decadent at the end and they were just repeating stuff that wasn't really valuable in the Buddha's opinion. That's what I was imagining he was referring Okay, to. yeah. Yeah. Susan, you had your hand up. Just want to say how <clears throat> I, I like I like it a lot how it's political in that so all the other people who weren't learned in the ways that the Brahmins were um, suddenly had enlightenment open up as, a, as an option for them. Well, this is a good point. It was a little bit more um, ecumenical, the Buddha's teaching. It did certainly require some effort. Um, not, in, not just anybody, anyone could join, but there was, you know, you had to follow the vinya and do the practices. But it was, yeah, it was something that the Buddha said is available to anybody who practices in this way. All right, that was a lot for today. Um, we're kind of nearing the end, so I think this is a reasonable place to pause until next week. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, we're seeing now maybe some more layers in this sutta. Um, as we bring in some of these other, remember I talked a couple weeks ago about different lenses that we can bring in. And this one does have a little bit of a historical cultural lens that's relevant for understanding it, although you don't necessarily need it. You could, you could understand this without it. Um, okay, so with any last comments or um, otherwise I'll see you next week. All right. Bye everyone. Thank Have you. a good week. Thank you so much. Be well.